to make a, 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 a funny, I was going to say, if you've missed the rabbi the first time, perhaps you'll be around for his second coming. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, Tom, speaking of speaking of second comings, we've got Thomas and I'll drop, I guess, maybe maybe, uh, maybe Peter's mic needs to get reset. I don't know. Anyway, Thomas, yeah, we'll, welcome. We'll, we'll give it a try. Cheers. Hello, hello, everybody. And nice to be back. I'm just trying to retweet it that people know we're going to start talking about Ukraine. And yeah, so yes, stuff has happened. Not much as we wanted to happen, but you know, slow grind, but it's going forward. And there's a, a, tremendous, a, a tremendous amount of detail ongoing and a lot of fighting to be had. Um, we understand that the Ukrainian troops have moved forward. I, I presume we'll talk about this a little, but I just wanted to start with the good news that uh, after the US had already supplied sea sparrows since the beginning of the year, for additional, um, say, layered air defense. And I understand that the Ukrainians have been using this shooting from their books, essentially, uh, that uh, now Belgium has uh, placed more sea sparrows on the chopping block and bringing them to Ukraine. So step by step, even the deliveries. Those uh, so-called Frankensams have been active since, as far as I know, the springtime. There's at least a dozen that is active now which consists of a book launcher from the Soviet era and U.S. Navy Sea Sparrow missiles. And the combination works perfectly. So the U.S. is slowly and the Ukrainians are slowly migrating all the book launchers to Sea Sparrow missiles because the U.S. Navy has thousands of them lying around, older versions. And the book missiles, which have been produced by the Soviet Union and Russia, are running out. But thanks to the ingenuity of, you know, Franken-Sams, as they are called by the Americans and the Ukrainians, work and are useful and are being used. So excellent use of old missiles. And as we see now, if there's a will with the storm shadow and the scalp on the Su-24 fighter bombers, the West can mount whatever it wants on an old Soviet system if it helps Ukraine, which is pretty reassuring because we have still a lot of stuff that can be used in that way. And I hope the people at BA Systems in the UK and the military engineers in Poland and the US are really busy with coming up with new ideas. It's interesting to see that uh, uh, the layering actually has seemingly worked much better than we feared, if I may say so. When we had the discussions about the various systems the Ukrainians would bring into the theater, and as you just explained, the, the creativity with which they have actually tried to make do with the limitations that are uh, imposed upon them or given to them, um, the high-value targets they have been protecting have actually benefited from protection. Yes, the amount of uh, systems, the, the sheer number of them is never enough. And uh, there's definitely a lot to be desired. One could hope for a few more Patriot batteries. But then again, at the moment, that is not in the offing and uh, that our Ukrainian friends are then doing what they need to be doing and fortunately capitalizing on exactly those um, old books plus uh, the sea sparrows, that is grand. What else should we be looking for in that regard? There's a couple of systems where um, say, um, the Ukrainians and uh, 
NATO stock keepers and spoils have been doing quite well recently, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The thing is that um, the Ukrainians and Russians are getting re ready for winter because both sides understand that the Russians are going to strike Ukrainian electricity and heating plants all winter again. And the Ukrainians have to prepare with spare parts to repair the plants, resilience plants, how to circumvent destroyed infrastructure, and with more air defense to take down whatever the Russians throw at Ukraine. And the Russians are stockpiling ammunition for that already. So yeah, we're going to see, um, again, like last fall, a focus on air defense, because in the East, in winter, without heating with electricity, it becomes pretty unbearable. And the good thing is that Ukraine can now strike back at Russia And deterrence works if you can hit your enemy at the same spot as he hits you. So if Russia again tries to plunge Ukrainian city into darkness and coldness, Ukraine can, can shoot back and turn the lights off and the heating off in Russian cities by striking up the Russian infrastructure, which is obviously a war crime. But, you know, since the Russians began it, who cares? And let's just give them the same medicine until they learn the lesson and deterrence is established that you don't do that. So uh, two things here. Ukraine is working very hard at improving its air defense systems together with its allies. At the same time, Ukraine is working very, very hard at long-range long strike missiles and drones to help deter Russia from attacking Ukrainian critical infrastructure. And the developments of, of which we've heard, and obviously there's very little public information, there are glimpses here and indications there, but the developments are going further into the direction. Um, sorry, you disappeared here. I can't hear you. Can you hear me now? Hello. Let's try this again. Peter, can you hear me? Hello. Yes, I can hear you, but it sounds like Thomas can't hear you, uh, which is annoying. I've just had a uh, Twitter pox incident and had to recycle. Um, all right. Uh, let me send him a let me send him a ding. Yeah, I suggest. Well, I heard it that, but I didn't hear Axel. But it seems Axel is speaking. So. Um... Yeah, he was trying to speak. I think he'll have to recycle and. Uh... Let's give it a go. Okay, again. I will recycle. Do I will be back in a second. Just a second, guys. Okay. Um, meanwhile, I will try and hold the fort. Um, apologies, we seem to be having some uh, Twitter pox uh, at the moment. This has been happening a bit uh, recently. Um, I've just replaced my phone and um, haven't had this uh, in the last few days, but um, uh, it seems to be some sort of general instability with the platform at, uh, at uh, Elon Towers. Um, anyway, um, we'll have Thomas back as soon as we can. Um, I always enjoy Thomas's sessions, um, even though sometimes I need to get the matchsticks on the eyes and uh, to last the full nine hours. But um, uh, as a non-military person myself, I'm absolutely astonished and blown away by his his insights and his military sort of um, perspective. Same applies to Chuck Farah, who's on here regularly on a Tuesday and a th 
Thursday night, usually with Alan Brewer, in case you, you don't manage to catch that slot. Um, and uh, we're very lucky to have Thomas uh, on quite regularly. Uh, usually comes up about once a month. And once he gets on, he, he seems to have a thing and he can't, he can't, uh, he goes into great detail and um, goes for his tinathons. So uh, how long it'll last tonight, we don't know. But as soon as Axel and Thomas have recycled, we'll have mm. them back for you. Not as long as usual because I have to write a piece for a major European newspaper tonight and finish it about the Karabakh, Karabakh conflict. They asked for 8,000 symbols, letters, 8,000, 8,500, and I am now at 17,000 and haven't even yet come to the 2020 war yet. <laughs> You'll make it a, a trilogy. Let's make it a trilogy. Start with a teaser yeah. and tell them part two comes next. <laughs> the thing is that unlike all those other idiots out there who are commenting on the Karabakh conflict, uh, they all don't know the history of this conflict. Uh, this is such a complex conflict. On the Armenian side, on the Azerbaijani side, it's pretty simple. They're trying to defend their country. But on the Armenian side, the infighting and the murder where the president has the prime minister killed in parliament and the president of the National Assembly gets whacked too so he can take over and subjugate. It's a complete mess. So there have been books that have been written about just this little aspect of the conflict. And since I was asked to give an overview, a short overview of the Karabakh conflict, as I said, I'm at twice the length that they wanted now and haven't even reached the main conflict of 2020 yet and not even begun to discuss the 2023 blockade, as is it called, and not begun to discuss the solutions that the European Union and United States propose. So at, in the end, I should finish it tonight. So in the end, I think I will reach not 8,000 letters, but something like probably... 30,000 or 35,000, and then they can try to shorten it or they just give me three pages. But um... I think they'll give you time to develop this over, say, a number of articles yeah. if they are completely happy with the beginning. And we had a segment on that uh, on Nagano Karabakh here with us uh, the last time at the end of our Tanaton, and I think many, many people have yeah. dialed in. Thousands of people have downloaded in the meantime the uh, last. Uh, um, a segment on Spotify, and uh, it seems that we're getting a lot of traction that people are interested in it. So we'll probably have to follow up on the next developments there too. I would like to revert a little bit to Ukraine, if you don't mind, Thomas, because there is a lot of stuff happening, in, in, and there are some, some details which have occurred. So um, the, the Kinburn spit um, has been attracting attention from the Ukrainian side again. Uh, in the last 72 hours. Uh, we've seen that uh, they have um, looked further as to, as to how to expand very carefully their uh, little bridgehead um, on the left bank. It seems that the Russians have thinned out their lines in the area south of Kherson. Do we have to expect anything there in the near future? Not on the Kinburns bit. The thing is, the Ukrainians need 
to focus on those points where a breakthrough in the Russian lines will lead to an operational gain, which basically means if you uh, take the Kinburn spit, you have a swampy spit with lagoons and swamps. And to get out of there, the Russians can block the spit because it's a narrow peninsula, basically, a spit judging and jutting out from southern Ukraine. But it's not really interesting to cross there. And besides there in the spit, the Dnieper estuary is very wide. And the Ukrainians will try to cross the Dnieper, but they will cross at a point where after crossing, they can quickly get onto a road. Oh, absolutely. A but road. Absolutely, Thomas. I was not referring to this. I, I rather wanted mm -hmm. to highlight that they have to clear the Kinburn spit, otherwise they end up having uh, issues from, uh, say, flanking fire and uh, Russian troops still being able no. to water them. Or is that incorrect? No, no, no. I would leave the Russian troops on the Kinburn spit and then slowly drive them a little bit deeper into the spit because then they're cut off, no resupplies. What they can do is starve or get killed trying to break out. Basically, this is a geographic feature. If you can cut it off as Ukrainian forces, all the Russians on it are trapped. Think of it like uh, Crimea. If you can occupy the north of Crimea, the Russians on Crimea are trapped if you can blow up the Kerch Bridge, right? So you create a Stalingrad. And if you can cut off the Kinburn spit, let's say, let's say the Ukrainian troops crossed at Oleshki and managed to advance after having crossed the Dnieper at Oleshki towards northern Crimea, you will have a few thousand Russian troops on the Kinburn spit cut off from fuel, cut off from ammunition, cut off from food. And there's almost no people left there, civilians, because the Russians drove them away. And so you can pocket a few thousand Russian prisoners if you want, or you can just block them in there and let them starve to death slowly. It's the option what the Russians want to choose, surrender or die. So no big deal. Um, Operationally, the Ukrainians will continue to hit the Kinburn spit. So the Russians have to leave forces there. And those forces can't be moved to any other place. And, you know, also that means that the Russians have to reinforce, have to bring in ammunition, have to bring in fuel, which will reduce the ability of the Russians somewhere else to fight. So the Ukrainians will keep hitting on, they will keep hitting the Russians on the Kinburn spit, like they keep hitting the Russians all along the Dnieper front to let the Russians never rest, to force the Russians to continuously reinforce, to continuously resupply. And at some point, the Russians will just break there. But until then, you know, um, since you can choose where to fight and the Russians have to have a continuous line of defense, you can attack them anywhere you want and force them to keep men and equipment there that they would need somewhere else, more emergence, more um, pressingly right now. Second thing, um, 
if you go into the Kinburns bit, you know, there's one advantage. If you attack at the Dniepro, you come from the Ukrainian-held side and attack the Russian-held side, right? So the Russians have to hold one line. The Kinburns bit is a peninsula. The Russians have to hold two sides because the Ukrainians can attack from both sides. They can take boats from Mikolaev Oblast and attack the Kinburns bit from the north or with their boats go around it and attack from the south. So the Russians have to keep troops on both sides. And as long as you hit it repeatedly, the Russians have to keep a few thousand troops there. And right now, a few thousand troops would help the Russians very much in Zaporozhye, where the Ukrainians are breaking through the Russian lines every day more uh, easily and faster than before, because the Russians are out of reserves. So. Hitting the Kinburn spit uh, is not meant as a preparation for a crossing or invasion or landing, but you know it keeps Russian troops away from where they are needed, and it forces the Russians to dilute their forces and supplies. And that's what you want to do right now in this phase of the Ukrainian offensive. That's why Ukrainians keep attacking around Bakhmut because the Ukrainians, if they take Bakhmut, it's not worth very much, just a city that leads to nowhere. But the Russians invested an immense amount of uh, forces to take this city, and the Russians don't want to give it up because it would be a defeat for Putin. Not a military defeat, but it would be a defeat politically and you know, propaganda-wise. So the Russians are trying to hold Bakhmut. The Ukrainians keep attacking there, not because they want to break through and advance there, but they want to keep the Russian forces there occupied, busy, and forced the Russians to continuously reinforce and resupply those Russian forces there, which then are missing somewhere else. So the Ukrainian strategy is pretty clear, pretty obvious, and it works. Uh, it's just not very sexy because it's very slow and grinding and you know, small team actions where like 10, 20 guys land on the Kinburn spit or 10, 20 guys advance into a tree line around Bakhmut aren't as uh, sexy as, say, a brigade of tanks and strikers breaking through a Russian line and then dashing into the Russian rear towards the Sea of Azov, which will come, which will come, because the Ukrainian phase, the Ukrainians are still in operational phase one, trying to degrade the Russians enough for the Ukrainians to have a weak spot where they can break through and drive into the rear of the Russian lines. And timing-wise, um, this methodic approach is born out of necessity. And it's also something which uh, our Ukrainian friends had highlighted. Uh, Andrei Yermak was the one who got, was quoted as to um, expecting that um, the, air, the, the time between September and uh, November would probably be the hardest for them, public relations-wise, because many people in the West would clamor and argue for um, this being a stalemate, therefore unsustainable, and uh, why would you not compromise and the likes? Whilst at the same time, Ukraine is constantly grinding down, attriting and sending the Russians and making headway to uh, allowing itself at some point to attempt to pierce through. So... 
everybody needs to remain patient. I think that's what you're highlighting, right? Yes, very patient. I mean, there's entire Ukrainian brigades where I have contact with a commander who hasn't, entire brigades of 3,600 men who haven't seen a single day of combat yet. They were pulled out of the front, those troops, mixed with new recruits in February. They went to Europe for training. They came back in May and they have been training and preparing for the second phase of the offensive offensive since May and they were told the earliest that they will be deployed on the front will be in September. So there's like a dozens of brigades that haven't yet been sent to the front and even those brigades that are at the front they're not fully at the front so they're circling through. So for example there's like the first battalion goes for a few days then retreats and the second battalion goes to the front and then it's replaced by the 3rd Battalion of the Brigade and so on. They're circling them through. Furthermore, the Ukrainians have again begun to pull out brigades from the front in sectors which are calmer. And these brigades are being reinforced and receive new recruits and have received new equipment and they are training. So the Ukrainians have constantly a dozen or 15 brigades in the rear some of which have not seen combat yet, some of which have been cycled into the front for a few weeks and then being pulled back to rest, some of which have been pulled out of the front a month ago or two months ago to have a complete refit of the entire brigade. So the Ukrainians still have reserves. A stalemate is when you are out of res- when both sides are out of reserves and cannot add more troops and equipment to the combat. The Ukrainians are not there yet. The Ukrainians still have reserves. The question is what the Russians have. Do the Russians have reserves? Um, It doesn't seem so. One thing is that the Russians keep their units in the front until they're completely destroyed. And then they pull out the remnants and rebuild them from scratch. So the Russian units that are at the front, they're all very badly degraded right now. And they don't get reinforcements because those are in the rear being used to form new units. And then those units basically come in and have no experience. So the question is really um, how much can the Russians pull together from their degraded units and from their recruits that they keep recruiting in Russia? And how many of the Ukrainian brigades that have been pulled back or kept in reserve can be deployed for the uh, final push to break through and then the exploitation of the gap in the Russian lines. So far, everything points to it that the Ukrainians have the better amount of reserves than the Russians. Also because, you know, the Russians uh, underestimated their losses and that means that the Ukrainians, which have had less human losses than the Russians, still have more troops. Ultimately, it's hard to tell what the situation is exactly at the front because both sides obviously keep that secret. But from what you can see, the Ukrainian seems to have enough troops for the next phase of the offensive. And since they haven't committed any of those troops yet, they are still waiting for the Russians to break. 
And in the meantime, the Ukrainians are destroying an immense amount of Russian equipment left and right, especially artillery, especially multiple rocket launchers, an immense amount of tanks and infantry fighting vehicles, which is irreplaceable for the Russians because all those stories about the Russian industry being able to build 600 tanks, this is just Watniks and crazy people wet dreams and not true. The Russian industry can't replace even 50 to 100 tanks a year. They're just pulling out garbage from their old dumps and fixing it up a little bit so they can just barely drive to the front and hunker down as like a mobile bunker and the idea that the Russians can replace their losses is ridiculous. The problem is they still have a lot of men and you still have to kill those guys because even just 20 guys with Kalashnikovs and machine guns that are behind the minefield block sappers from cleaning the minefield for the continuing offensive. So you have to find a way around and kill those 20 first and then the sappers have to clean it hoping that the enemy doesn't fire artillery at the sappers. So everything is a slow grind, but the Ukrainians have not once slowed down. So it's still ongoing and there's still a good chance that before the rains in November come and the cold, the Ukrainians will have a breakthrough and an operational advance towards the Azov Sea. The interesting thing also, and, and consistent with what you just highlighted, is that uh, the Ukrainian artillery is making good use, as it seems, uh, of the DPICM ammunition, because uh, there have been imagery, has been imagery not only in the past two days, but the 44th, which seemingly has uh, taken out approaching reserves. So when the reserves are coming, and if they are coming, uh, they are getting attacked uh, whilst approaching the line and uh, replenishing Russian forces. So in that regard, finally, the ammunition, which many people have been clamoring for, including us here, is put to good use. It seems that the Ukrainians are not just um, taking out the equipment, as you said, the Kamaz trucks, the artillery systems and the likes and uh, electronic warfare elements, which are vitally important that they are going to be reduced, but um, they, are, they are still also taking out a lot of Russians which is very fortunate. How do you rate in this regard then the uh, reported increase in in uh, of intensity of the Russians' use of drones? Um, it was bound to happen that the Russians continue to use more drones because the Russians are just copying the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians are using an immense amount of drones. And the Russians saw that and were like, we should do that too. And as usual, the Russians take a half a year to a year to copy. But then, you know, they do it too. So it's just, it was expected that the Russians would do it. I mean, the um, Ukrainians began to use drones like crazy. And then the Russians came up with the Landsat drones, a copy of some Israeli designs, some really bad copies, but you know, it works. So the Russians are always copy-paste automations, but it takes some time for them to get the productions up and running or to basically develop such units. Um, what is interesting, the Russian reinforcements that came in earlier rode in on tracked infantry fighting vehicles, which are armored, and the Russian reinforcements that come in now come in trucks, which basically means that the Russians are running out of infantry fighting vehicles and they're just dumping men with Kalashnikovs and some machine guns into tree lines, hoping that they can uh, slow down or hold up the Ukrainian offensive which naturally means that trucks 
don't offer any cover against DPICM cluster munitions. So it makes it for the Ukrainians much more easy to kill a lot of Russians riding in trucks. Plus cluster munition, shrapnel will destroy a truck, will shred the tires, will destroy the cabins and the fuel tanks. And all those trucks will just burn and be useless. So the Russians are running out of equipment, not yet out of men. The Russians, it seems, are running out of mines because the mines they have been using were mostly produced in the Soviet Union and they had millions and millions in their depots. And it seems that the Russians used 60% of their mines in the first line. And each subsequent line has a lot less mines because the Russians just ran out of them, believing that they could stop the Ukrainians at the first front line, trench line, and they didn't uh, put more mines in the later lines because they just didn't have enough. And obviously the Russians can't produce that many mines because in the Soviet Union where 20% of GDP was for defense, an insane amount, 20% of GDP for defense, you know, in the Soviet Union in peacetime, but they were just obsessed in the Soviet Union with defense spending. So all those factories where tens of thousands of people were working in the Cold War don't exist anymore. And even if the Russians could get one or two production lines up, they could never make as many mines as during Soviet times. So the Russians cannot produce another 10 million mines as some Russia fans want to make you believe. So uh, the Ukrainians are grinding away at the Russians. They're breaking through the lines. It's a hard slog. What you can see is that the Russians are running out of good equipment. Uh, they're losing left and right stuff. That we saw a return of the Bayraktar TB2 drones in the last few days in the south of Ukraine indicates that the Ukrainians cannot detect any more Russian air defense radars in that area and know that it's now safe for their TB2 drones to fly again there and basically hit Russians with glide bombs. TB2s are using laser-guided glide bombs, so very silent, very deadly, easy to make, cheap, and the Turkish have definitely given Ukraine a few hundred of those. So when the Ukrainians are flying TB2s again, it means that definitely, definitely the Russian air defenses in that region have been annihilated completely and there's not much left for the Russians to, how to defend in the air. So uh, clearly the Russians probably have pulled their reserves in air defenses to the center at Zaporozhye. And this gives Ukraine opportunities on the flanks to hit the Russians with more drones. And more drones means more hits on Russian bunkers, tanks, artillery systems, and so on. So opening opportunities. But this all is in all, Thomas, mm -hmm. this is consistent with the fact that, as we discussed earlier, that, and I, I apologize for the dogs barking, um, but this is consistent with mm -hmm. what we discussed earlier, that the electronic warfare systems have been amongst the hardest hit in terms of numbers. Uh, if you look through the last few months, like the last four months, a massive amount of uh, sensor arrays, uh, EW systems, different layers have come under attack and the Russians have been putting them back and back and back. And it seems that this is now thinning to the point that Russia is, as you just said, incapable 
of deterring the intrusion by both drones, as well as, as it seems likely now, the closer approach of the Ukrainian Air Force. Yes. It's very obvious that the Russians are losing so much equipment that they cannot maintain a coherent air defense electronic warfare belt along the entire front. They have to take out units here and there now to basically reinforce their key sectors, like in Zaporozhye. And probably also they have to take out some units to bring back to Moscow or Russia to defend their air bases against Ukrainian drone strikes. So this is all thinning out the Russian lines. Uh, one thing that stuck me when the Lubak guys crossed the Dniepro in early August, right, at Kozaki Lahari, the Lubart guys reported for the first two days only Russian mortar fire. So the Russians were firing mortars, which is an infantry support weapon. There was no Russian artillery. There was no Russian multiple rocket launchers for the first two days. Once the Russians understood that the Ukrainians are not leaving, that this is not a raid, but the Ukrainians are trying to have a small beachhead, the Russians brought in some artillery guns and at least one Uragan rocket launcher battery and began hitting the Ukrainian with those in support of the infantry mortars that were hitting for the first two days. So it meant that the Russians didn't have any artillery on the southern bank of the Dnieper and basically relied on just the hope that their minefields in the river and on the riverbanks, plus some infantry and mortars, would be able to stop the Ukrainians. Now, the Russians had an immense amount of artillery initially along the Dnieper because they kept hitting the city of Kherson and the villages around it every day. And slowly, slowly, the Ukrainians degraded that, and a lot of those, those artillery systems were moved to the Zaporozhye front. So the Ukrainians at this moment have some uh, Russian artillery south of the Dnieper, which they're trying to find with their drones and destroy with Excalibur and GMLRS rockets. And the Russians don't have anything to bring in because a GMLRS rocket at Lockheed Martin is like produced 10, 20 a day. Uh, Uragan, for the Russians, produce maybe 5 to 10 a year. So for the Ukrainians, it's just a question of spotting the Russian artillery and then they, they destroy it. The Russians then have nothing to replace it with. So everything is working. It's just much, much slower than if NATO would do it because, you know, Ukrainians have to send out the drones. Those drones have to spot a target. Then the Ukrainians have to figure out by looking at the GPS coordinates where the target is. Have to make sure the target isn't moving find the coordinates, send it to a HIMARS or M270 system or an Excalibur-equipped artillery unit. Those then have to strike the Russian target and destroy it. And with NATO, there would just be like a bunch of F-16 and F-15 strike eagles flying over the Russian lines, looking for Russian equipment. And once they have it, would immediately laser it and bomb it into ob oblivion. So. NATO can do these things much, much faster thanks to its air power, and the Ukrainians do it still, but they do it much slower because 
the drones that they send out have a limited range. The drones they send out are often destroyed or jammed. The drones they send out don't have the warheads to destroy such targets immediately after they discover them. So uh, the whole offensive, it's still working. It's not failed. It's going on. It's just much slower than all of us would have liked it. But Zaluzhny decided that the lives of, your, uh, of Ukrainian troops are much more important than a fast offensive. So for that reason, he is using this uh, systematic and slow approach because losing a drone, pretty good, you know. It doesn't mean, okay, wait, let me rephrase that. Losing a few drones isn't a big drama compared to losing a soldier who always has a family. So sitting in the trenches, sending out drones to find Russian equipment and then destroying it with long-range precision fires is a smart and sensible approach. And it's very good that Zaluzhny chose this because whoever runs out of man first loses this battle. And Ukraine is preserving its forces while the Russians are driving them in trucks into cluster munition range and killing them by the hundreds that way. Which brings us to the point that there is obviously a variety of locations and attack vectors Ukraine could choose. Sometimes you fight the enemy and hit him where he's not, quite literally, and uh, circumnavigate the positions. Sometimes you have to find a way to break through a certain line in order to create that uh, vector yourself, which seems to be the case here. They are fighting uh, towards Novoprokopivka and uh, Robove to open up uh, a corridor to then advance further south southeast um but on the other hand they are still head-on circumnavigating tokmak because it makes no sense to attack it directly the same as polohi is that how you see it as well because i mean we discuss it with nuno we discuss it with chuck everybody has come to the point to say that this is one of maybe three attack vectors but that this is not even the primary one it's just one which has occurred and has been seen to be most attractive at this point in time in view of that era between Tokmak and Polohi. How do you see that? Um, we have no idea where the Ukrainian general staff plans to attack, actually. Yeah, of course. All that we're, we have seen so of course. <laughs> yeah. Now, all that we have seen so far could just be distractions, could just be meant to basically draw the Russian house out to degrade them and the final strike comes somewhere totally different. Um, that said, the Ukrainians are advancing in a direction which forces the Russians to reinforce, because if they don't, the Ukrainians will find a spot where they can break through and into the rear of the Russians. So what the Ukrainians are doing, they attack at some point where the Russians are forced to reinforce. Now, where do the Russians pull these forces from? From other parts of the front, which means they're thinning out the front in other sectors. So there's a hope that the Ukrainians will have in mind some 
point where they would love to attack and they're waiting for the Russians to basically thin out the Russian lines there. Um, that said, Tokmak, with its trenches all around the town, you don't want to attack that. You want to block the Russians in that city. Basically, you can um, get a, a few thousand Russians out of the fight if you manage to advance past that city and encircle it. You just need a very few men, like half a brigade, to keep a thin line around it, preventing the Russians from breaking out, and you have neutralized a few thousand Russian troops. Um, there's no, the Americans landed in Normandy broke out of Normandy at the end of July and by August were in Paris. And most of the Atlantic harbors on the French coast, French Atlantic coast, there were German garrisons of 10,000 or even more troops. And the Americans were like, well, we can do two things. We can attack all those harbors and cities and crush the German defenders and take those cities. Or we used, I think, the 92nd Infantry Division and have them block these German units in those harbors. Why? Um, the Germans can't break out because there's like 500 kilometers of American troops and French civilians and Marquis between them and Germany. So they're stuck in those uh, Atlantic harbors, like I think Bordeaux and La Rochelle and so on. And at the same time, the Germans don't get any reinforcements, they don't get any ammunition, they don't get any fuel. The German submarines cannot enter and exit that harbors anymore because American artillery can just hit them the moment they enter the harbor and will sink them. So these places have been completely neutralized. And I don't remember, but like 40,000 something German troops neutralized by 15,000 American troops who was just patrolling aggressively around those harbors not letting the Germans out. So with a low employment of personnel, the Americans took a lot of Germans out of the fight and at very little cost because the Germans at the end of May, in the May uh, 45, they all surrendered. And the Americans, the only harbor the American forces stormed was Cherbourg, Cherbourg and the Americans have heavy losses there. So that system of just blocking these harbors with some troops was much more, uh, let's say, sensible than trying to storm them because the Americans didn't need those harbors and the Germans couldn't go anywhere. And at some points they would have to surrender anyway. So the Ukrainians will probably go around all these fortified Russian positions and hope a lot of Russians get stuck there, you know. If you can get 6,000 to 8,000 Russians get stuck in Tokmak and you encircle them, if there's a lot of Russians in there, they will starve much faster if there's just 1,000 Russians in there. So also the more Russians you can get stuck in Tokmak, the less you have to fight on the way to the Azov Sea. So the Ukrainians are not going to in any way try to storm these places. They're trying to go around. And that's the smart move, pretty much. So. Um, at Bakhmut, I think the Ukrainians are trying the same. I think at Bakhmut, the Ukrainians are trying to take uh, areas south and north of the town 
and hope that at some point I can encircle a few thousand Russian troops in Bakhmut and then basically just Stalingrad them into submission. So we have to wait because um, right now the Ukrainians are not yet near Tokmak, but I'm pretty sure they will not waste their time and their troops trying to take this city because they don't need it. <coughs> Sorry. 100%. Uh, I think there, there's uh, considerable agreement on the matter. And uh, at the same time, we're all waiting as to what might happen uh, further to the west of it, because uh, people are still looking at how could uh, Ukraine reach um, Henichesk and maybe Armyansk on the other end of the access to the Crimean Peninsula the fastest, and what would be the fastest way to do so, whether it actually would have to be that grand encirclement going cutting down south and then taking it westward, or whether there would be one or two additional vectors coming the other way. In that regard, also the question comes up yet again, how long the Ukrainians would have to wait to have uh, the ground uh, in the Dnipro Basin to be sufficiently solid? Would it have to freeze over for the first time, or would it just uh, remain sufficiently um, bridgeable, or uh, say within a few weeks from now, after a long, hot summer? Oh, it's already breachable. Uh, breachable. The Ukrainians could cross the Dnieper right now if they wanted. The problem is that the Ukrainians seem to have a certain checklist of how many Russian equipment and troops they want to have around before they go into the next phase of the offensive. Like the Ukrainians aren't saying we are going on the offensive on that day. They're like, okay, so when, once we see the Russians have lost that many equipment and they have committed those reserves to that sector, then we know if we cross the Dnieper, the Russians have neither the reserves nor the equipment to stop us. So the Ukrainians are looking at their checklist at, at what stage the Russians are too weak to uh, contrast a Ukrainian landing in force, and then they will go. Uh, the river is already dry enough and the riverbeds are dry enough to go. The Ukrainians are moving back and forth every night and having a quite a fun time hitting the Russians every single night with special forces. There's more than a thousand special forces and thousand Marines going over the Dnieper every night on various points to hit the Russians with raids and basically clean Russian mines. Because um, basically what the Ukrainians are doing, they have a rope we can anchor and they basically then go to the other side of the river, throw the anchor into the riverbanks and then start dragging the Russian mines away that are on the riverbed to basically clean it. And the Russians don't have enough mines to replace them. So slowly the Ukrainians are creating gaps in the Russian minefields in the riverbed. And it's a question of the, when the Ukrainians want to cross because they have the pontoons, the ground is solid, the Russians are tinned out, but we can tell that the Ukrainians don't feel it's yet the moment to cross in force. The Russians don't believe the Ukrainians will cross, because if the Russians would believe that, they would have more reinforcements south of Oleshki or near uh, northern Crimea. But as far as we can tell, there's almost nothing there except for some small units in the rear, logistic units and some air defense and some reserve units so um 
And as you said, the Ukrainians are attacking now at Verbove and other areas in the center of Zaporozhye Oblast. Um, they might attack at some point somewhere completely else. Because, you know, if you're the Ukrainian general staff and you can, and most Ukrainians in the south where the Russians operate are loyal to Ukraine and keep informing Ukraine about Russian troop movements. So if the Ukrainians figure out in a few days that the Russians pulled units out of a front sector to reinforce Adverbova, the Ukrainians can say, oh, look, here is our gap. Here the Russians are very thin and the troops are very low quality and they can break through here. So um, there is no idea where, I mean, if you look at Normandy, in Normandy, the British and Canadians were attacking at Saint-Lô every day and with all the force they had. And German divisions were bleeding out there and the Germans kept moving units towards Saint-Lô because they assumed this is being their position closest to Paris. So here the Allies want to break through. And the idea was not to break through there, but to draw the Germans there and have them bleed out. And then the Americans broke through at the other end of Normandy. And what they encountered, three American divisions with almost 50,000 troops encountered one German paratrooper regiment of 1,600 men holding the line. It took the Americans a few hours to break through. And the biggest problem the Americans faced was that the US Army Air Force dropped their bombs too short and hit the American troops themselves. And the Americans basically spent most of their morning tending to their casualties caused by, catch, by friendly fire. And then they broke through. So um, the Ukrainians are likely trying to figure something out that is similar, you know, attack at one point, draw the Russians there, keep them there, bleed them out there, and wait to see where the Russians in their desire to shore up the central front open a gap for the Ukrainians to break through. Uh, so I have my theory where that might be, but so far we haven't seen the Ukrainians go for it. So September is upon us. As I said, there's a brigade, I know the commander, who's saying, no, 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 we have trained. We are still in training. We're waiting. From the first day of September, we were told to be ready. And so far, they are still in the rear, waiting for the order to basically go out there and clear the Russian trenches to open a gap for three mechanized, uh, mechanized brigades. So who knows where that is i will hear it when he goes but you know until then i can just speculate and i'm just looking forward yeah very much so at the same time of course there are other opportunities uh, along the line of contact uh, we had a chat last week on thursday with nuno and where he once again highlighted one of his favorite areas um because he's been um, pursuing the matter for quite some time and highlighted much of an opportunity, the axis uh, alongside Svartova, not necessarily through, but alongside Svartova, towards Starobilsk, with a view to actually threatening Luhansk, um, would bring. How do you see that northeastern front, given the fact that it seems that the Russians can't really uh, threaten and can't really force the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians have sufficient amount of capacity to, to either deter or simply dispel the attacks, albeit that they're harsh and 
Kiev Independent published a notice as one of the um, uh, more recent stood up brigades from the beginning of the year, which had uh, suffered casualties and whatnot, which of course is the case. But still, how do you see the northeastern front line and the opportunity there? Would you agree with Nuno's perception that there is a possibility that there is, so to say, there is an attack vector to be had? Yes, but it leads nowhere. You can attack and draw Russian forces there. You can attack and destroy Russian forces. You can liberate some territory, but you cannot win the war. Let's put it this way. Um, if you want to win the war, marching on Moscow is the idea, right? Napoleon, go and get Moscow, occupy the city and try to win the war by having a devastating blow against your enemy from which he'd want to recover. How did that work um, Napoleon? Yes, just, no, just an idea. So, but he, he went to Moscow. I could also take another example, like the Americans went for Paris. The Americans didn't go to Lyon, Lille in 1944. They went for Paris to liberate France. Let's go with the Americans, okay? So the Americans in... What they did after landing in Algiers and in Morocco, they went to Tunis, capital of Tunisia, right? And the Germans tried to hold it until the last moment. Then the Americans and the Allies landed in Sicily and went to Palermo. And then the Allies landed on the southern Italian coastline and marched north towards Rome. And when that didn't work out, they tried to land at Anzio and Nettuno and tried to get to Rome from there. So they tried to take key cities, key objects, right, which would end the war or which would devastate the enemy so that it loses the ability to fight. Um, in Swatovia, you can destroy Russian units, you can destroy Russian military formations and equipment. You can't win the war. The war is won in the south, in Crimea. If you look at the big cities, Luhansk, Donetsk, Militopol, Simferopol, Sevastopol, none of those cities is in the east, really. Luhansk is at the end of the east, but you know, Luhansk is not that important because nobody wants Luhansk. It's not, it has no value. The valuable cities are Mariupol and Sevastopol and Crimea per se, because it's just if you have Crimea, you control the Black Sea. So for the Ukrainians and the Russians, the key terrain for victory is in the south. So if the Ukrainians attack at Swatovia, they can distract the Russians, force Russian units to move up there, destroy Russian units, which is all good. But if you commit your best units up there, you will not have them in the south, where the war is won. To go back to the um, example of France, you want to head to Paris and you want to liberate Paris as soon as you can. You don't want to liberate Bordeaux. Bordeaux gives you good wine. Paris is the seat of power. Paris is the most important city. Paris has the highest number of uh, people in France and key industry. You liberate Paris, that's a giant victory. You take Bordeaux, yeah, it's nice, but it doesn't win you the war. So if you go into Swatovia, good, you will destroy Russian units, you will destroy Russian equipment, you will not win the war. It's, it's a secondary vector and it cuts off logistics. Yes. 
uh, it cuts off logistics to the north. It helps in in con containing the Russians and it helps drawing them uh, to that area so that they have to commit more force to defending Sviro, Donetsk and that, that area, correct? Yes. I'll give you another example. The German armies invaded the Soviet Union in 1941. After the first phase of Operation Barbarossa, they had to take a, breath, a breather to um, bring supplies up and to rest the troops a bit. And there were now two strategic options before the German high command. An immediate push towards Moscow or a move of central army group, army group center to the south and a move by uh, army group south over the Dnieper and then towards the north to encircle 300,000 or more Russian troops around Kiev. So <clears throat> what would win the war? That was a question. Will the war be won if we take Moscow or will the war be won if we destroy one of the biggest Soviet armies? Hitler insisted on doing the Kiev operation. And the Germans crushed half a million Soviet troops in that operation. Prisoners killed, wounded. It was a complete defeat for the Soviets. But they lost a month, one and a half month of their drive to Moscow. And Stalin and the Soviet high command used that time to raise new divisions, build defenses in front of Moscow and bring in Siberian divisions to defend Moscow. Once the Germans then attacked Moscow, it was too late in the year and the winter set in and the German tanks bogged down in the cold and the troops started to freeze to death. Plus the Soviets had used the time to build up new armies that replaced the destroyed armies in the Kiev cauldron and they had built up massive defenses which the Germans couldn't penetrate because their troops were exhausted and in winter the Soviet divisions that were fighting before Moscow held those trench lines. I'm not saying that if the Germans would have driven to Moscow directly, they would have won the war. But they got distracted by a side theater because it wasn't the key terrain to occupy the territory to the east of Kiev and um, encircle and destroy that Soviet armies there. It was a good victory, hands down. Strategically well executed, operationally well executed, but it just wasn't worth it. And the Ukrainians putting uh, a massive amount of troops into Svatovia would draw away the forces they need for the main theater of the war. So I would go into Svatovia with one or two brigades just to mess with the Russians, you know, force them to bring in more troops, force them to thin out their lines somewhere else, destroy the Russian equipment they bring in with GMLRS rocket and Excalibur. But if you advance into Svatovia, you're not going to win the war. You're going to lose the war. You have to invade not invade. You have to liberate northern Crimea if you want to win this war. Don't get distracted from that goal. It's focus moment, if focus you moment. are the Prussian. Yes, if you are the Prussian army in 1850, you have to march to the sound of the guns at Waterloo. You don't cross the Rhine. You march 
to the sound of the guns of Waterloo and take Napoleon in the flank. Don't get distracted. Where's the fight? Where's the victory? There. And you must march there. The victory for Ukraine is the moment they reach Jankoy in northern Crimea. Once the Ukrainians hold that city, the south and the Crimean Peninsula are lost for the Russians. It's over. Jankoy is the key. All railroads in Crimea go through this town. All roads in Crimea go through this town. You hold that town. Crimea, except for the coastal road, completely in the south, is, co in, the south, is completely in range of GMLRS rocket. You hold Jankoy. You have to the east, the sea. You have to the north, the lagoon of the Sivash. Basically, those directions the Russians cannot attack. To the west, you have the sea. To the northeast, to the northwest, you have the Ukrainian uh, held territory from the Dnieper to Jankoy. You just have to hold that city and fire GMLRS rockets into Crimea, and it's over. The three air bases the Russians have in Crimea, once the Ukrainians are in Jankoy, Khadiske and Saki are in GMLRS rocket range. The Russians have to abandon them. Belbek is still out of the GMLRS rocket range, unless the Ukrainians advance another 10, 15 kilometers over the steppe in northern Crimea. If the ground-launched small diameter bombs arrive, Sevastopol, the docks, and Belbek Air Base are also in range. It's completely over. There is a price that leads to victory, and it's in northern Crimea. And no matter what the Ukrainians do, they must not let that price out of their eyes. You can break through the Russian front and drive to the Sea of Azov. Good. Don't let the Russian troops then escape into Crimea because you will lose the war. You will have to cross the Dnieper and block the Russian escape. If you um, attack at Swatovia, good. You can destroy Russian equipment, but you need to have enough brigades left to cross the Dnieper and reach Jankoy. And you have to have enough brigades to break through at Verbove or Vuleda or wherever and march to the Sea of Azov. The victory is the destruction of the Russian forces in the south and the liberation of northern Crimea. 100%. That's it. In the 2020 Karabakh war, the occupation, liberation, depends on what your view is, of Susha in the center of Karabakh was the absolute victory. And the Azerbaijanis just drove towards that on foot with all their energy. Because once you hold that city that is on a mountain top, surrounded by cliffs and it's easy to defend, you control the roads from Karabakh to Armenia. The main city of Karabakh is completely under your control because it's below Susha and you can fire mortars into every building from Susha. Once you control that city, the war is over. And the Azerbaijanis knew it, looked at that price, and everything they did, every attack they made, every advance they made was, we have to get to that city. It doesn't matter how, and it doesn't matter where we go, but we have to reach that city. And once they had that city, two days later, the Armenians surrendered because they knew it was over.
Jankoy is that place for the Ukrainians and they must not get distracted. And from what I have seen so far, they're not getting distracted at all. They're aiming for that. They're just not yet ready to push towards it, but they will be ready. Very good point. I couldn't agree more. And I think uh, both uh, General McRyan as well as Ben Hodges would argue the very same thing as you just laid out. Now, let's switch gears a little bit, Thomas, very briefly, uh, given the uh, day today. I mean, whilst for North American fans, it's Labor Day. Today was also um, Russian drone abscond, uh, absconding day because a Russian drone fell into um, what is only what could only be described as Romanian airspace and then onto Romanian ground. Now, this is the second time around. The first time around, they were very close to it uh, at a, a local Danube port. This is a little bit different. Are we, uh, as a friend of mine would have said, weak need or will we take action? Should we? And how do you see it? We're not going to take action unless uh, NATO personnel or NATO civilians is killed. Um, the moment the Russians intentionally or unintentionally kill civilians or military personnel from a NATO country, we will react. We have to react. We cannot take that. If a drone falls onto NATO territory, uh, the NATO will be like lodging a protest, a protest with the Russians, and that's it. Um, you know, um, go going over uh, to war over a drone that crashed is not worth it. The moment such a drone, let's say, falls down and hits a building in Romania or in Poland and kills 10, 20 people, then it's on. Because NATO can ign cannot ignore the loss of life that a Russian attack caused on NATO territory. As long as there's no um, loss of human life, NATO will stand down. Like when the Russians destroyed a drone, an American drone over the Black Sea, NATO didn't react. It was international waters and the drone, I mean, you can replace that easily. You just tell Lockheed Martin, make another one. If the Russians would have shot down an American reconnaissance plane like a, a rivet joint or something like that with 15, 16 American Air Force personnel on board, the United States and NATO would have reacted furiously. So loss of life is the line that is being drawn. Israel doesn't react to Hezbollah's continuous firing of mortars and rockets into Israel. They react a little bit, they fire a little bit back. Israel gets really, really aggressive the moment some Israeli is injured or killed by that mortar fire from Hezbollah over the border from Lebanon. So you don't want to... Um, go to a war which will cost a lot of lives and risk escalation if a Russian drone, let's say, drops into a forest or a riverbed in Romania. There's a line. And right now, nothing. when these two Polish uh, workers were killed by an errant Ukrainian missile, right? Initially, the Poles were furious because loss of life 
is such an aggressive act, you cannot ignore it. When it turned out it was an errant Ukrainian missile, it was okay. It's a accident. It wasn't intentional. It was, yeah, war effect because the Russians attack Ukraine. If it would have been a Russian missile that was fired and hit Poland and killed Polish citizens, we would have had a very aggressive NATO reaction. So right now, um, if a drone fell on Romanian territory, it's like, I haven't tweeted about it because it's not relevant unless there's a loss of Romanian life. And there's an interesting fine line, and I'm not quite sure why they haven't crossed it quite yet. Um, but if you don't mind, Thomas, a friend of the space and our colleague John, John Howard, I presume has an idea in that regard. John, what's your view? Yeah, thanks, Axel, and, and good evening all. Um, and I fully accept what, what Thomas is saying um, with regards to loss of life being the, the trigger point for a reaction. But I think there's potentially a, a step short of that. Um, which is Russian munitions falling on NATO territory, one, and then two, uh, NATO then says, okay, we cannot allow this to happen, and therefore we will set up uh, an air defence zone, say, 20, 30 kilometres deep, and you know, an engagement envelope 20, 30 kilometres from the, from the NATO border into Ukraine. Any Russian munitions that enter that, um, we will engage, uh, and we will engage those on the basis of self-defence and the precedent of Russian munitions having previously hit NATO territory, um, even though no lives were lost. Um, and, I mean, great respect to, to Thomas. Um, I know he has some, some very impressive sources. Um, my understanding, talking to people on the ground, uh, with regards to the, the S-300 in Poland, uh, was that that was not a Ukrainian missile. Um, but there was uh, an awful lot of very rapid downward pressure from Washington to ensure that um, that was the story that was that was followed. Um, but he may, you know, he may have better sources than me on that. I have to admit, in case of missile sources, I'll always turn to John Rich because no one, no one knows more about missiles than John Rich, and he identified it then as parts of an S three hundred, if I'm not mistaken, and. One more thing, yes, NATO could install an um, air defense belt that would extend into Ukraine by 20, 30 kilometers um, to protect NATO airspace, which would be in line with international law. We could defend ourselves even before it reaches our territory, you know, even if we have to shoot down um, enemy uh, drones and equipment before it reaches our territory. So, yeah, that works too. Um, I just don't see NATO getting all worked up for now over this issue. And the next problem is that I don't think that NATO has enough air defense systems to effectively... We all lack air defense systems in Europe because we're using the Air Force for that so much. So all European nations, even the United States, don't have enough modern air defense system to create a... Like in the Cold War, when NATO created air defense belts, literally there were running two belts of overlapping air defense batteries, all from Denmark to Germany to this. So like there was one in front with Patriot and Hawk, followed by one with Patriot and Nike, and then later Patriot batteries 
two complete belts of overlapping Patriot battery after another, one after another. No Russian plane would have been able to cross those belts into the rear because behind both belts lay all the NATO air bases in Germany and in the south of Denmark. Italy had also these two belts and behind it lay the NATO air bases except for Aviano and Istriana which were inside the belts. Greece had such a belt at the north. So we don't have these kinds of massive amounts of air defense systems anymore. So I, I think NATO would struggle to create an air defense belt that goes from, let's say, the Polish-Ukrainian border to the Romanian-Ukrainian border. Yes, John? Yeah, thank you. And good points well made. I, I take that on board completely. You're right. The, there is a lack of resources there to do that. However, I think the, the kernel of a solution was actually inside your, your answer, um, which was, you know, obviously... Through, through our own systems and surveillance, you know, we have knowledge of incoming munitions. So we have a good idea. Um, and we know which areas are being attacked, where there is likely to be or that there is the potential for an overshoot of a Russian munition into NATO territory. Um, so if we thicken the cap slightly rather than worrying about trying to, as you say, literally cover the whole border, but, you know, we have more sorties up. You know, we, we can see when those munitions are coming in um, and we can position our own aircraft to actually make those interceptions air to air. Um, so I, I think I think your, your solution is, is there. But at the same time, the reason why it probably wouldn't happen, which is obviously the, the utter failure of political will to uh, to look in any way robust when it comes to defending our own territory and our own citizens. I mean, God forbid. That is correct. Um, right now, I think the most at-risk places in Europe are opposite Yarorev on the Polish-Ukrainian border because Yarorev, Yarov, sorry if I pronounce, if I butcher Ukrainian place names sometimes, but sometimes they're just like not rolling off the tongue easily. Yarovif in Lviv Oblast near the Polish border is a key Ukrainian training ground. And it's very close to the Polish border. So here we have a risk zone. But I think the American Patriot battery at... Now there's a Polish place name that is even worse than Ukrainian place names. I'm sorry. I think Rysheshev. <laughs> so there's an American Patriot battery there. So that should be covered, that gap in the that area in the border. And then obviously there's Ismail at the Ukrainian Romanian border where NATO definitely should place a Patriot battery to basically protect Ismail the harbor because it's one of the key harbors on the Danube and the Russians are basically striking. The Danube is here at the international border between Ukraine and Romania and the Russians are striking just over the Romanian border at key infrastructure and I mean if we could place a NATO air defense system there that shoots down Russian drones under the pretext that we're trying to defend European NATO territory. That would be perfect. But, you know, there's no political will to take this risk. And it's really sad because, I mean, what can the Russians do? We're just defending ourselves. Got a problem with that, the Russians? I don't know what you want. Yeah, I mean, both Reni and uh, Ismail have now seen Russian drones and Russian uh, missile attacks in recent history. And evidently, the whole Danube is their target in order to deter any kind of um, regular transit and uh, 
force their will upon those who ship Ukrainian goods. Uh, but Thomas, is it is it fair to say that um, um, what John suggested, and I, I tend to agree with this, by the way, that extending the envelope is something which we can certainly state. There's no question that an international waterway such as the Danube requires protection. And uh, we've, we've done similar things in the past, have we not? I mean, I, I can remember days of the protection of the Strait of Hormuz at a point in time when there was a hot war ongoing. That wasn't simple protection. I mean, the Americans were like, okay, so the Iranians are hitting Iraqi oil tankers coming with Iraqi oil through the Persian Gulf and moving through the Strait of Hormuz. So the Americans put in lots of special forces, Navy SEALs, who basically continuously hit Iranian bases to basically prevent those attacks. Um, there were operations where the Americans sank Iranian vessels, Navy vessels. So um, there was a very aggressive posture against Iran. But the thing is that back then there was Ronald Reagan in the White House who basically um, hated Iran and the Iranians had just um, passed through the uh, hostage crisis where they had hundreds of Americans hostage in Tehran for more than a year and it threatened them with execution. So the Americans were really like, yay, we can hit Iran now, and they did. And here we are at a point where nobody really wants to go up against the Russians. And personally, I think we shouldn't get involved militarily, you know. The best course would be to tell the CIA and the MI6 and whoever else is up for that to um, sabotage Russian production facilities where these drones and cruise missiles are produced. Um, you know, if the Russian factory making cruise missiles blows up because there was an accident, bummer, nobody is guilty. Maybe some worker, he dropped something tragically. Nobody is alive to tell what happened. The ideal way, I think the Ukrainians are doing it already by burning down continuously Russian facilities that make equipment. But in the ideal world, we could have basically our special activity divisions go out there and say, well, this is a Russian facility that makes key electronic components for drones. Oops, there was a little error in the heating room and it's some sparks blew up the gas or the oil tank and oh, the whole thing is burning down. So tragic. The Israelis aren't striking the Iranian nuclear program with missiles or bombers, they are hitting them with uh, specifically, um, let's say, um, improved equipment, which the Iranians install into their nuclear program and then basically it destroys parts of the nuclear program because those connectors have little grenades in them, that USB stick has a virus, that equipment releases gas, this equipment changes the speed of the centrifuges to make unusable enriched uranium and so on, you know. Um, there are some very, very good ways how to reduce the number of Russian cruise missile and drone strikes against Ukraine, which are, think of James Bond having a go at some Russian factory, you know. We don't know anything. 
It just happened. Tragic accident. Oh my God, Putin. Maybe I should enact some European level like worker protection laws, you know, so your own factories don't blow up. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of what we, we would tell them, but you know, uh, at the same time, there is a bunch of people that in the headquarters of the French Foreign Intelligence Agency get some medals for their, um, I don't know, visit to a Russian plant or some equipment, some printer that was shipped and the printer blew up and a whole thing burned down. There's lots of creativity there, you know? So um, if we want to help Ukraine unleashing Western intelligence agency to have fun with Russian military production facilities, we get um, two, three layers of denial, you know? We have no idea what happened. We are shocked like you. And at the same time, we help Ukraine with reduce Russian capabilities, cap capacities and capabilities to produce weapons, and we protect ourselves. I mean, God forbid, imagine if the Russian bomber fleet gets some fuel which has been manipulated and all the engines break down. Man, this could happen. I mean, it's not, it's not bound to happen unless we Europeans find a way to make it happen, or the CIA or the Mossad or what, whoever else has has the desire to have a little bit of fun with the Russians, you know? But there's ways, there's possibilities, there's options, and I'm all for it. And I will always deny that the Europeans have ever done something like that. I will be shocked, shocked that there are fires breaking out in Russian military factories. Andre, you had, I will a, be shocked. You had another workplace accident. How come? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I will be shocked, but I will celebrate. All righty. Uh, I was always in the past, and, and I have to confess this here, and I made fun of the one-eyed Scott when he was the prime minister. Um, but nowadays, we also, and talking about equipment, what we could do, obviously, uh, what we could do is also deliver weapon systems. We now have a, a one-eyed um, lower Saxon in the chancellery at least temporarily. Um, it seems that the man is a little bit infirm and jogging as easily as he's infirm and making decisions. Uh, what with Taurus, Thomas? Taurus is a very good missile and it should be delivered to Ukraine, as Fabian, who is a listener here, will tell you because he's the Taurus expert. <laughs> and the thing is that um, Schultz doesn't have any courage. There was this movie, um, Wizard of Oz. I don't remember. Was the lion the coward, or was I think it was the lion who was the coward, right? So, um, in the Wizard of Oz, the lion is the coward, and the straw man is the one without a heart, right? Well, Schultz has neither the courage nor the heart. Oh my gosh! The one that... without the brain. Ah, without the brain. Okay. So Tin Man was then without a heart or whatever. So basically, Schultz is uh, those three guys combined. No heart, no brain, no courage. So that's a bit of a problem, because if you're the chancellor, you should have at least some semblance of courage. And delivering Ukraine weapons to defend itself should be a no-brainer. I mean, the French and the British went ahead and had no problem to deliver scalp and Storm Shadow. And yes, they're running out of targets by now because the Russians have moved all their key uh, command posts and stuff out of range of the Storm Shadow and Skull missiles. 
So Taurus, with its extended range, would come in very, very handy to still hit Russian targets. But since the Ukrainians would use the Taurus likely at first to hit the Crimean bridge, I think Scholz can't sleep from the thought that he would do something good for humanity, you know, because that bridge has to go. That's the evil bridge. The sooner that bridge goes to the bottom of the sea, the happier the world. We can all rejoice once that stupid bridge is gone. He doesn't want to get rid of the evil witch on the evil bridge. Well said, well said. Uh, you, you dragged me into Wizard of Oz territory, I have to say. I was laughing my head off when you uh, highlighted the cowardly lion because there's one thing, one thing uh, he hasn't taken out of uh, Osnabrück. It is uh, a lion heart. But there you go. Um, we have a hand up from Chris. Chris. Thanks, Alex. And hi, Thomas. And, and uh, not to disagree with you because I, of course, agree with everything you say. Uh, just to, to have a, a thought, you said that like the cities, they, they can be, you know, passed by and not uh, taken. And I'm just like, if you paint a grim picture and there's some kind of uh, peace treaty dooming, uh, it's not every city that still has Russian occupiers in it uh, in danger of being drawn to some kind of side of map that we don't want it to be drawn to, just as a thought. Not really, because once you have the city surrounded, even if you make a ceasefire or a peace treaty, you can say like, yes, yes, okay, talk Mac remains in Russian hands. Fine, and we keep blocking it. Oh, all the Russians starve to death. Tragic. So um, any territory, if there should be a ceasefire, the most extended range of Ukrainian um, advance will be the ceasefire line. The thing is, we don't want a ceasefire. You don't want a ceasefire with fascists. You want fascists to be beaten. Now, you can go back to the British Parliament. There was the debate about the Islamic State attack, right? And if I'm not mistaken, Tony Bennett, the British parliamentarian, held a speech and said, if history teaches us one lesson, you do not negotiate with the fascists. You beat them. You defeat them. They have to be fought. They have to be destroyed. Because the fascists, the moment you give them time to regroup or reorganize, they will come back at you stronger the moment they feel they have rearranged their forces for the next phase of the war. So if we give a if you have a ceasefire in Ukraine, Putin will just use it a few months to reorganize his troops, drag in more conscripts, dig more trenches, buy weapons from North Korea and maybe China. We don't want that. We want to destroy the Russians. Now the West's job, the goddamn job of the West, is to deliver more weapons to Ukraine. For the last weeks, there have been zero announcements of deliveries of any kind of vehicles to Ukraine. No artillery, no infantry fighting vehicles, no tanks, nothing. 
the West is slacking. The West is already like at the barbecue and it's like, yeah, victory. No, no. The Americans in World War II were producing aircraft carriers every week, nonstop an aircraft carrier came off the production line, escort carriers, light carriers, fleet carriers. Carrier after carrier was coming off the production lines. The United States didn't stop wartime productions until the Japanese signed the surrender. Right now, there's European countries who are like, yeah, it's over. <laughs> Let's go back to peacetime production levels. Let's make one tank a year. You have to make a tank a day. So um, we don't want ceasefire with fascists. No, thank you. What we want is an increased production of equipment in the West for our militaries and for Ukraine's military. We have to think about ourselves too. The Japanese just increased their military budget by 13% this year. So the Japanese increased their military budget percentage-wise more than all NATO members. No NATO member increased its military budget this year by 13%. The Japanese did. So some countries that are not in Europe get it. Some countries that are in Europe still don't get it. There are some countries who are still bitching about that they might have to buy HIMARS. Hello, Espania. And stop it. After COVID, the European Union got together and said, we will take a credit of 750 billion euros to get our economies back on track after the COVID pandemic. And you know what? It wasn't necessary. Our economies went back on track on their own. The European Union should either get now a $750 billion credit right now to buy military equipment for the European Union militaries and for Ukraine, or at least allow European nations to take military spending out of the budget deficit rules of the European Union, because we need to produce more equipment. Nothing, nothing except for artillery ammunition has gone up in production levels. Europe isn't producing more tanks. Europe isn't producing more infantry fighting vehicles. Europe isn't producing more artillery system, except for Poland. Poland being the adult in the room, while most of the other countries are spatulent childs who are bitching about that we will have to invest more in defense. So Poland, yes. The Baltic nations, yes. Some Scandinavian nations like Denmark, yes. Other countries, it's just like, especially the richest country in Europe, Germany, it's still like, what? So yeah, we don't want ceasefires. We want more military spending. We want more help for Ukraine. We want a crushing defeat of the Russians. The defeat must be so crushing that the, the regime in Russia and subsequent regimes cannot deny it. The German defeat in World War I wasn't crushing. So the Nazis and also the right-wing parties and military formations like the Stahlhelm and so on could claim that Germany never lost World War I. And that's why it should refight the world war and this time win it. 
Only after World War II, the defeat was so complete that the Germans realized we shouldn't try that again. Now, I'm from Italy. Italy suffered crushing defeats in Libya, in Tunisia, and in Sicily. But then the fascist Grand Council removed Mussolini from power, and the king fled, and Italy collapsed in a double onslaught of German invasion and fascists taking over. The Italian defeat in World War II wasn't crushing. This is why Italian fascists still pretend that Italy never lost that war. If we want peace in Europe, we must have a crushing defeat of Russia. It must be so crushing in man and material, in lost territory, that no Russian government now or in the future can deny that this was a defeat because then the Russians won't do it again. If you give them a way out, an off-ramp, and allow them to recover, they will try again. Good luck to us then, because then the Russians will be better equipped and the Ukrainians will be better equipped and the war will cost even more lives than now. But that's exactly the point, Thomas, that we yet again are very close, very close to snatching defeat from the jaws of victory by allowing uh, this to linger on for far too long. Uh, let me just go, we have a couple of hands up and questions, if you don't mind, uh, before we uh, transition over at a later stage. Uh, Alex and Fancy, and I saw that Furious George came up. Alex, please, give a question for Thomas. Thank you. I have a question slightly about different uh, um, subjects. There was information that Russians are forming Reserve uh, 19th Army, and uh, I'm wondering how this is going to be. So they take some units that lost a lot of personnel but retain officers and put some new mid-grinder material into those, uh, trying to mix that and uh, call the seller the new army? Or like, where will they get officers or, or equipment for the army? I mean, it takes time, no? Thank you. Thank you for the question. Yes, the Russians are forming new units, but you know they have to pull units out. And those units they pull out are almost completely destroyed always. They're also forming new um, airborne divisions from brigades that have been destroyed. And basically what is left of these Russian units is pulled back, filled up with people that signed up and trained very quickly and equipped with all junk, and then sent back into the front. It's not really a uh, a combat-strong formation, you know, because um, the Russians rebuilt some of their best divisions, and those divisions received the best equipment. Those units that they are forming from scratch now, it's kind of like they don't have the equipment, they don't have the officers, as you say. They don't have uh, the material. These are being uh, second-level formations. I give you okay because I like to go always into history to give you an idea, right? So the Italian army, the Royal Italian Army in World War II, raised a bunch of divisions before the war. 
And then during the war, they figured out that there is not enough equipment to raise more divisions because the losses at the front that had to be replaced prevented the Italian Royal Italian Army to raise new divisions with a full set of equipment. So what they did, they formed garrison divisions, which were basically light infantry units with almost no equipment beyond rifles and some machine guns. And these garrison, garrison divisions were sent into Yugoslavia to replace infantry divisions, which still had a full set of equipment. So those uh, units with the full set of equipments could be released for frontline duty. The Russians are suffering from the same problem, but at a much higher rate of attrition than the Italians, because the Italians only had one front that they really had to service with equipment, and that was in North Africa against the British, Indian, South African, New Zealand, and Australian, Greek, and Jewish, and French army, eight army in Egypt. So um, the Italians only had to send replacements there because in Yugoslavia against the partisans, they didn't need tanks, they didn't need heavy artillery, they didn't need lots of fighter jets and bombers and so on. So they only had to replace that one Italian army equipment in Libya, and it was about 120,000, 150,000 Italian troops maximum there. So the Russians um, have much more troops at the front with much higher rate of attrition. Building equipment is much more complex today than it was in the 1940s. And the Russians just can't replace um, all the equipment they lose. So the divisions that the Russians are raising now are basically the same as the Italian garrison divisions of World War II light infantry units of low combat quality that you insert in the front to take out better formations with better equipment and better trained troops. So you can put these better trained units somewhere else in the front. Basically, you are plugging gaps with trash so you can put your somehow not complete garbage units somewhere in the front and plug gaps. Uh, the idea that the Russians can form whole new armies not really going to happen. They don't pose the same threat as in a different time. I think this is the key element, and we shouldn't be as fearful um, and feel as doomed as sometimes Western media likes to uh, make everybody feel. Um, Thomas, if you don't... One more yes, thing please. is, one, one more thing quickly. Um, what the Russians call an army isn't an army. The Russians call everything with one or two numbers bigger than what it actually is. Russian airborne divisions are similar to an American reinforced airborne brigade. Those aren't really comparable to Western formations. The entire Russian airborne forces consists of four divisions and I think three brigades and a special force brigades. Four divisions and in, I think four total brigades. You think that's a lot. The American 101st Airborne and 82nd Airborne have together more troops than the whole Russian four divisions for brigade formations, that is the Russian airborne forces. If the Russians call something an army, you have to look what they really consist of. There have been Russian armies 
before the war that consisted of one division and one brigade, which in Western standard is not even a corps. A Western corps is three divisions. A Western army is three corps with three divisions. So you have nine to 10 di divisions of 15 to 20,000 men that form a army in the West. In Russia, you can have armies that consists of 15,000 troops, not even 10% of a Western army. So the Russians are just using big names to scare people, but what is inside behind those big names is often just tiny, junkish crap. Yes, those Russians with Kalashnikov still can kill, and you have to expand ammunition and people and artillery and sweat and blood and tears and toil and whatever to kill them and get rid of them. But this is not a formation that can go on the offensive. This is not a formation that can drive onto Kiev. This is not a Soviet army of the Cold War. This is just some band-aid that the Russians pulled together to basically release better formations from the front. Mussolini was an idiot and Putin is the same guy and he is making the same errors and I'm kind of like history. It repeats itself. And it's not bad that it repeats. Every fascist dictator is an idiot in the end. Blinded by his own stupid ideas of grandeur and superiority and incapable of seeing the errors of his ways. And he keeps throwing equipment and troops after his stupid ideas. And I mean, we shouldn't stop Putin from doing that. The Russian army and its generals remind us more of the Wizard of Oz. But there you go. Um, the man behind the curtain is a dwarf. Fancy, please. Hello. Um, thanks, Axel. Hello, Thomas. I have I have actually two questions, but I'm going to go with one and then maybe later throw in the other. Um, with the first fitting, actually, the historic context that you currently went through, Thomas, um, I've just recently been talking with a friend who also is very interested in historic battles um, and much more knowledgeable than I am. And, and he asked me a question that I couldn't answer, but I knew I was going to ask you that question. He asked, why are Ukrainians pushing extremely hard and continuous against these fortified positions of the Russians? And why don't we see um, feigned retreats to attempt to pull out the Russians from their um, fortified positions to encircle and slaughter them? Um, why is this tactic at least not, not so visible to us? Is it not used? Um, is this war... Does it necessitate kind of um, a continued push throughout the fortified defenses? Um, yeah, I think you, you get what I'm asking, right? Yes, I do. Um, I have a theory why the Ukrainians attacked at the most fortified Russian sector. The Ukrainians aimed to attrition the Russian forces. And if the Ukrainians would attack where they actually want to break through the Russian lines, the Russians would come up here and throw everything into the Ukrainians' way and would immediately start to begin to build new trenches behind it and new lines of defense and so on. 
the Russians right now are defending their best sector. And the Ukrainians are pushing the Russians out of their lines, which means that the Russians have to man the lines behind the first line and have to bring up equipment, artillery, and tanks, and electronic warfare systems, and air defense, and so on. And the Ukrainians are striking all of that from the distance with their artillery, and also some FPV drones. I assume that the Ukrainians want to destroy the Russian ability to effectively command and control and move units. Uh, If you have no uh, ability to move your units, they're stuck and the enemy can just move around them and pocket them, you know, behind their lines. And because if, an example, if your military can move all on tanks and trucks and uh, infantry fighting vehicles and your enemy is on foot, you will beat the enemy by moving behind him while his infantry is moving on foot and cannot escape. So the Ukrainians, I assume, are attacking here, not with the intention to break through, but to draw in all the Russian forces. Attacking here means that the Ukrainians can spend two, three months of continuous attacks, and the Russians will have for two, three months to bring in reserves after reserves after reserves, giving the Ukrainians an opportunity to every time the Russians bring some units forward to destroy more and more of the Russian equipment, especially artillery. I saw some statistic that the Ukrainians claimed to have destroyed 600-something Russian artillery systems in the last month of August. That's possible. Still take it with a grain of salt because not every hit results in a catastrophic failure of a Russian artillery system. You can hit it and it can't maybe be fixed. Sometimes it's not even damaged because the um, shrapnel didn't destroy key components. Sometimes the Ukrainians might be too optimistic. So 600 is possible that the Ukrainians destroyed it, but I'm not basing my analysis on that. So the Ukrainians are wanting the Russians to come to them. Every time the Ukrainians take a new trench, the Russians have to move troops around, have to move artillery around, have to put new infantry in new lines, and that gives the Ukrainian opportunity to hit them again and again and again with artillery and precision-guided munitions. I wouldn't have done it, but I, as coming from the NATO stable, I would always assume that we have air superiority and can bomb the enemy. So um, I, my theory is that the Ukrainians looked at the front and said, if we attack on a weak spot, we will break through very quickly. Then we have to move into the Russian rear, but all the Russian reserves will still exist at that point and come up to meet us in a battle. And the Ukrainians decided that they do not want to have a battle like that, you know, running battles like tanks against tanks, uh, fighting in the fields and so on. So the Ukrainians decided that they want to destroy the Russian reserves first. And I assume my theory could be wrong. The Ukrainians attacked at the strongest Russian, sorry, 
defense line because they knew it would take them months to break through here, which would mean that the Russians for months have to bring up reinforcements that the Ukrainians can destroy. This could also be completely wrong because we don't know what Jaluzhny and his staff have cooked up. The thing is that Jaluzhny went to Yarovitz and met with Berekin, uh, the British admiral, commander of the British forces, and the commander of NATO to discuss the Ukrainian plans. And what is dripping out of that meeting is that both the chief of staff of the British military and the supreme allied commander of NATO in Europe both agree with Jaluzhny's strategy and support it. And both of these went back to their countries to tell their governments what Ukraine needs to continue on this strategy of Jaluzhny. So we don't really know the thinking behind this attack. We can have our theories and assumptions. The Russian losses in equipment and personnel so far justify the Ukrainian strategy. After the war, there will be books and we will learn more. So far, as a NATO trained military person, I wouldn't have attacked here, but we have a completely different way of fighting wars in NATO than the Ukrainians have, because NATO has combined more fighter jets and bombers than the rest of the world combined. So NATO doesn't need drones. NATO doesn't need that much artillery because we have a thousand F-16 just crisscrossing the sky and bombing everything that they see. Long story short, um, the Ukrainian strategy seems to make sense. There hasn't been criticism from the generals that have spoken with Jaluzhny about it. They support it. Uh, criticism comes always right now from people who are anonymous and have no clue about the Ukrainian strategy, have not met any Ukrainian officers, have not been in any planning sessions. Um, that's why you can ignore all those criticisms. Ultimately, the success will be measured if the Ukrainians, when they break through, can reach the Azov Sea and northern Crimea. Even if they reach them by Christmas only, the result of the offensive is not measured in the middle of the offensive. The ultimate Success is measured in months after Ukrainians reach the Azov Sea. So far, the Ukrainians have neither pulled back nor stopped their attacks. So the offensive is still going on. If the Ukrainians pull back tomorrow or completely stop the attacks, then we know the offensive has failed. As of now, the Ukrainians are putting in fresh formations to continue the fight while pulling out the units that have fought for three, four weeks at the front to give these units a rest for the next phase. So anyone judging the offensive right now, premature, take a step back.
even though we are only speculating about the Ukrainian strategy, so far they're pursuing it with vigor, which means that it's working as they expected, maybe slower. I mean, the Allies expected on D-Day that they land and in the first day take all their objectives and some of the objectives objectives of D-Day they only took a month later. Every plan in the military is slower than you expect. Montgomery at El Alamein was like, yeah, in three days I'm through it. And then two weeks later, he was still trying to attrition the Germans and the Italians and find the gap in the Axis lines. So every offensive is always slower than you expect. I mean, Iwo Jima was like, we land. And after two days, we raised the flag. And then Iwo Jima of the Marine Corps was like, two days, we're not even off the beach. But really, they were, they, were, they were part inside, and some of them even crossed. But, you know, Iwo Jima was four weeks, five weeks of horrible combat. So every offensive plan, the moment you, it meets the enemy, grinds down to a much slower speed than expected. So, um, yeah. The, but the good thing is also the Ukrainians are losing much less equipment now than before. The first day, they lost an entire company of Bradleys and Leopards in a pretty daring attack across a minefield. And since then, lesson learned, they're losing much less equipment. So that is also a positive. All righty. We have more hands up, Thomas, if you don't mind. I know that you have to finish your article. Absolutely fine. But if, that's, that's okay. If you have a few Give it minutes. to me another 10, 15 minutes, cool. and then I have to go because I have to go back to Karabakh and the, the Armenians, which are just mind-boggling sometimes. Absolutely. All righty. Let's go uh, to Furious George, and afterwards we'll go to Fancy. George, please. Hey, Thomas. Uh, glad to have you on the space. I got two quick questions for you one is about the uh the the attack on the the air base where the il-76s the aleutian 76s were uh scoffed there we saw a video released by the ukrainians which kind of just shocked me you had a drone flying over right at the time of the attack with a thermal camera recording the attack which i thought was like crazy right this is an air base you would think they would have some sort of air defense over it obviously they couldn't hit the attacking drones but they couldn't hit the drone that was just looked like it was just hovering i don't know how many feet above the above the uh you know above the flight deck and uh just you know taking images of the drones hitting these uh, Illusion 76s. And my other question is, did you see after the Russians, I don't know if this is real, like I, I was shocked. I, I don't know if this image was fake or not, but there were tires on top of the wings. I just wanted your take on that whole, on that whole scene with the, with the drone using thermal cameras, taking images while the attack was happening. Yeah, I saw that video too, and it's pretty amazing because I think this means that the attack came from inside Russia. I believe the Ukrainians basically managed to get a team from the military intelligence service or some Russian partisans into Russia, and they launched an attack on a Russian 
not just any Russian military base. This is the best Russian division. This is kind of like someone going to America, entering the United States with a truck full of drones and managing to hit the 82nd Airborne Division base inside the United States and film it and get away with it. So um, this is an amazing attack, and I love it, and I hope we're going to see more of that. Um, I assume that the Russians didn't have any air defenses at that base because everything they have to have in Ukraine, minus some little bit of air defense systems in Moscow to protect the life of Putin. Because you can tell that the Russians let Ukrainian drones fly around Moscow and hit office towers and hit buildings. They will only shoot down Ukrainian drones if they come close to Putin's residences and houses. They don't care about Russian lives. And in between, the Russian air defenses shoot down enemies of Putin with their private jets, you know, because that's also something that the Russian air defense is good, shooting down civilian jets, as we know. It's one thing that they're brilliant at shooting down civilian jets. Um, So yeah, it's pretty cool attack by the Ukrainians. I really, really hope we will see more of that. And yeah, the Russians are obviously, obviously completely incompetent to defend their air bases. And I look forward and I hope that we might get some Ukrainian attack like that on a strategic bomber base, because that would be really embarrassing for the Russians if they cannot protect their strategic bomber bases. You would need air defense and electronic warfare systems and jammers and a lot of ground patrols to protect such a base. And the assumption I have is that the Russians have all of that in Ukraine and their bases are completely undefended right now, except for some military police and local police. So... Whoever did the attack, executed it, heads off, more, please. I like it. I look forward to it. Okay. Andre, you lost another bomber. (laughs) It's it's getting silly, isn't it? But seriously, no, I completely agree with you. Whatever the Ukrainians can do in order to pursue these aims further, uh, well, good on them. Fancy, you had your hand up and then we have Johannes, and I think then we're soon nearing the end of her. Uh, the effort, but there you go. We still have more people coming up, as I can see. Fancy, please. Thank you, um, Thomas. Another question, as I um, announced, and it might be naive, so just proceed to the next question if it's too naive. Um, I looked at the map and I talked also with a lot of Ukrainians who were quite worried why this is not happening. Um, so, north of Kupiansk, right, there is um, the area um, of a place that some of us call Bilarodnaya Narodnaya Republic, um, where the defenses of Russia are really weak. Um, why don't we see Ukrainian incursions from there behind the fortified lines? It seems, at least on the map, right? And that's why I call my question naive. At least on the map, it seems like it would be straightforward to just massively pushed there behind the fortified positions because it's kind of like a way around because Russians seem to have stopped at some point to reinforce the borders. The thing is, I think, has to do with uh, international right. Right now, Ukraine is the victim. 
Ukraine has naturally every right to invade Russia if it wanted to, but it would make some of Ukraine's allies squeamish. When uh, Russian liberation forces and uh, free corps units entered the Bilhorod uh, People's Republic this summer, there was much rejoicing and happiness in all of the globe because American Humvees were driving around Russia and shooting up Russian troops, which was really cool to see because the Humvee is made for killing Russians. And yeah, finally he could do it. Um, some countries got completely twisted in a panic by that. So the Ukrainians could move around the Russian lines there, but you would have a whole bunch of one-eyed German chancellors getting all bonkers about, oh, panic, don't do it, no, please, no, and so on. So it's not worth it for the Ukrainians. You can tell that the Ukrainians are pretty happy to let the Russians attack in that direction and try to kill a lot of them while the Russian infantry comes over the fields with artillery and with machine guns. i give you another example. In the 2020 Karabakh war, the easiest solution for Azerbaijan would have been to invade Armenia north of Karabakh, cross into Armenia, and then wear to the south and cut off the entire Karabakh region by an encirclement through Armenian territory. And Azerbaijan chose not to because the entire war, the entire Karabakh war, first war, second war, has been fought a hundred kilometer inside Azerbaijani territory. Not a single shot was fired inside Armenia. That meant that even the French president Macron, who was a big, big fan of the Armenians, had to admit to the Armenian national diaspora organizations in France that he can do nothing because Armenia isn't being attacked. Armenia attacks another country because the entire Armenian army was not in Armenia, but was inside Azerbaijan. So the Azerbaijanis choose to not attack Armenia because then by international law, nobody could come to the aid of the Armenians because Armenia wasn't attacked. Armenia has a pact with Russia that Russia will defend Armenia. And when the war began in 2020, the Armenians told the Russians, defend us. And the Russians was, yes, we will. The moment there is one shot fired inside Armenia. And as the Armenians learned, the Azerbaijanis read that treaty too. And the Armenians were alone. The Armenians went to the European Union, the president of Armenia, and asked the European Union for help. And they told him to fuck off. And he went to Brussels, to the NATO headquarters, and asked NATO for help. And they told him to fuck off. So Ukraine, by retaining, keeping the war inside Ukraine, Russia has zero international legal uh, opportunity to get Ukraine. I mean, China, China could say, oh, the Ukrainians have invaded Russia. Now we can help Russia because Russia has been invaded. Right now, China would have to lie a crazy lie that Russia has been invaded, that's why we're helping them. So there is probably a Ukrainian decision 
also probably enforced by NATO and the United States that the Ukrainians have to keep the war inside the internationally recognized borders of Ukraine. So launching drones at Moscow, launching missiles into Russia that have been produced in Ukraine, everybody is okay with that. Not even the Chinese are condemning that. Everybody's like, yeah, it's fine. But Ukrainian brigades crossing into Russia, I mean, if the Ukrainians would cross into Russia, they could march on Moscow right now because between the Ukrainian border and Moscow, there's nothing. There's traffic police, a handful of traffic police here and there. and They could just reach Moscow and occupy Moscow and burn it down, which would be really nice if the Ukrainians burned down Moscow like the Polish already did 400 years ago. Um, so I think the Ukrainians understand that they cannot cross into Russian territory for legal reasons and not give Russia any pretext, you know, to call for the aid of other nations. And it's not a, it's not, it's a good question, but I think there's a pretty easy answer. It's the pretty answer is that, uh, the easy answer is likely that the Ukrainians don't want to give Russia any legal claim to be invaded and ask other countries for help and that Western nations do not want ground forces to enter Russian territory but keep the war inside Ukraine. So personally, in my view, this is a correct move. But the Ukrainians should produce a half a million drones and just drop half a million drones on Moscow just for the heck of it, you know, bring the war to Russia. And if you have trouble with that kind of drone attacks on Russia, as we have seen, the Ukrainians are very capable of launching drone attacks from inside Russia. So um, what are the Russians going to do? Some guys inside Russia, we don't know who, launched some drones and those drones attacked the Russian airfield. Uh, who, who are they going to blame? So, yeah. Ukrainian brigades crossing the border might be a step that is too risky from a legal perspective and from a Russia can then ask allies to help it perspective. But drone attacks, which Russia commits against Ukraine every day and missile attacks, everybody, even the Chinese and everybody else seems to be okay with that and nobody has a big problem with that. So I think Ukraine should just go and produce as many drones as possible. And the West should help. Because if the Ukrainians have to produce 100% of the drones themselves, they cannot reach mass production levels. So I mean, if, if we can produce drones and then send Ukraines the kits and the Ukrainians just then use two screwdrivers to put them together and produce 10,000 like that a month, fine with me. Batteries, but, Thomas. We can help them with batteries. And I fail to understand why the German government is not talking to Varta, uh, one of the leaders uh-huh. in the world on battery development to create, create large-scale capacity innovation to support the Ukrainian drone program. That would be something worthwhile as a public-private partnership. Well, the German government doesn't do future technologies. The Japanese are delivering and the South Koreans are delivering the batteries that the Ukrainians need right now. 
There's also satellite communications, there is uh, optics, there is uh, uh, anti-jamming technology and so on. And there's countries in the West who are delivering all that to Ukraine in basically packages that the Ukrainians only have to screw into their drones. Like here's the jamming resistant satellite communication system, just screw it in your drone. Here's the warhead without explosives. The Ukrainians fill those themselves. So the West isn't doing kinetic attacks against Russia. And I mean, the leaders in battery technology are all in South Korea and Japan, and Ukraine is getting whatever it needs from there. And Europe is again losing out on a future technology because we are stupid. Or at least our politicians are very, very stupid. So uh, I don't care. I want the Ukrainians to get whatever they want. And if, since the South Koreans and Taiwanese and Japanese see an opportunity to make a billion dollar here by selling tech and equipment and material to Ukraine, fine with me. The European Union should just pay. And if we cannot get our act together now, Germans, Italians, French, and so on, then um, at least we are helping the Japanese dominate that market for another 20 years. 100% still doesn't convince me that Varta should not be incentivized to supply what is leading cutting-edge technology. But having said this, uh, we have three more questions. Just one, just one thing, yeah. Axel. Varta could supply it, but until the Germans have figured that shit out, the South Koreans have delivered batteries for 100,000 drones. I bet you, I mean, the Germans in two years haven't figured out how to upgrade their Panzerhaubitze 2000 from the uh, 2000 year design and increase productions. And the South Koreans are throwing out one Panzerhaubitze, uh, one armored self-propelled artillery howitzer after another right now and are upgrading it to the K9PL standard at such a speed and the K9A2 standard at such a speed. I mean, uh, if you are in a war, you don't want to wait for German bureaucracy and the German chancellor. You want to get the stuff right now. And obviously the South Korean, which have a crazy neighbor and understand what is at stake, are the ones to provide the equipment. Uh, I, I, I agree with you. As I said. I, I agree with you. It's, it's a major yes. deficiency that we're not using what we actually have at hand. We have technology, we have capability, production capability, logistics, and even proximity. We're still not using it. Yeah. Exactly. And with EADS, there's one of the biggest air defense companies and aerospace companies in the world, and it doesn't have even a, a drone in the program that would be able to be sold to Ukraine. While American companies are throwing out drone designs every week, a new one, and asking the U.S. government to fund it for Ukraine with the idea that once the American government funds it, they will sell also 10,000, 100,000 to the U.S. government of those. So um, the thing is that in here right now, speed is of the essence and the Europeans are. I mean, I like the European lifestyle. I too spent half the summer mountain biking and not working. But right now, the Ukrainians don't need the European lifestyle. They need the American lifestyle of, yes, I'm in the office at 6 a.m. and I leave at 3 a.m. and I sleep three hours in the parking lot of the company in the car. So I'm back in the office at 6 a.m. So we produce whatever is needed for Ukraine right away. And South Korea and Japan have uh, increased production way, way above what they produced before the Ukraine war started. 
And the Japanese are also, I mean, the Japanese who have designed every piece of equipment themselves for the last 30, 40 years, just designed, decided that they are going to license a Finnish uh, wheeled armored personnel carrier design because they don't want to wait for their own industry to come up with a design. They just want to go into production as quickly as possible. So um, the Asian nations have completely understood the assignment, as have the Poles and the Baltics and some of the Scandinavians. Old Europe, as it has been called by Donald Rumsfeld, hasn't even read the assignment yet, because if we would have read the assignment, every European military factory would run 24 hours a day and the governments would just be like raising taxes. Because one thing that people don't forget, the peace dividend was mostly invested in reducing taxes compared to the Cold War. Peace is over. We have to pay a little bit more taxes if we want to live safe and secure and protected in our idyllic continent of Europe. And in some countries, the UK is the worst offender because the British military is starved, starved of equipment, and the British government can't even have schools where the ceilings don't crumble on the children because they reduced taxes in the last years under the Tories so badly and so much that there is no money for the British army. And the British army, excuse me, the Americans expect the British army to be the first on the front and to be the best on the front. And right now, the Brits couldn't do that. There's no equipment. There's not enough troops. And right now, the Polish army and the Italian army can provide the Americans faster, better divisions than the Brits. And for the British to let the Americans hang like that, that is so damaging to the American-British special relationship. And nobody in Britain seems to realize that it's time to tax all the rich people a bit more and get the British military back into a shape that at least the Americans can count on the Brits to show up with one armored division next to the American divisions because the plans are that two American armored divisions and one British division will form a core. And right now, the Americans are like, well, these Polish divisions look really nice. British divisions don't exist anymore. Well, since the days of John Major, Unfortunately, every single defense budget has always been reduced, 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 and cut. And uh, the capabilities, the tremendous capabilities, the British Army, the Royal Navy, and the Royal Air Force have had during the Cold War and retained to the extent that it was possible during the Cold War, unfortunately, have not been preserved. Thomas, we have three hands up. Shall we go through very quick questions and make sure that... Yes. Okay. These questions, and then at uh, 10.30, I leave you. Okay, perfect. So, Johannes, Melus, Genesis... Let's go through the questions, let's uh, rack them up, stack them, and then we'll go through the answers. Johannes, what's your question? Okay, so then I'll, I'll just leave out half of what I wanted to say. Now, just uh, because I came late, I, 
not really sure. Did you talk about, well, has there really been a breach of the Russian defense lines in the South, uh, of the kind of main Russian defense lines? I, I'm sure you talked about it and I missed it. I'm sorry. Uh, because, I mean, it, it sounded... Yeah. You didn't miss it. We didn't speak about it because there's, there's confusion. There are Ukrainian troops behind the second Russian defensive line. The question is, are these small units operating there cleaning Russian trenches? Is it a breach wide enough and secure enough from the flanks to move through heavy equipment? Because if you just have like half a kilometer, the Russians on these flanks of this half a kilometer wide gap can fire at crossing tanks and equipment with anti-tank guided missiles and destroy it while it crosses. So there's confusion as how deep the Ukrainians stand there is a clarity that what I hear from American officers, the Ukrainians are far deeper inside the Russian second line than we know because we get the videos and the photos with a delay of a few days and not the full picture. Have they broken through, which means a breach, you can break into the enemy line. Basically, a break in, you have a few hundred meters you took from an enemy line. But a breach is wide enough to move forces through without having a fear that from the flanks the enemy will attack and destroy your tanks and equipment. So we at this moment do not know if there's a breach, a break-in, if there's just Ukrainian forces operating behind the Russian lines, if this is... We don't know. I'm looking at it and I don't know. Because... The information we get is, uh, at the moment, not enough to make a clear statement. Also, it's not clear. There are so many Russian lines. Have they completely gone through this line, these small Ukrainian detachments? Or are they in the middle between the lines? Are they just clearing the first three line? Or do the Russians have further lines? So we have to wait. The thing is... Once Ukrainian reach a road, we can geolocate it and then know exactly where they are. And if they have equipment like a striker or a challenger or a Bradley on that road, we know they have broken through. Right now, we see three lines with Ukrainian troops. And what we see is Russian drones filming the Ukrainians getting hit by artillery which means we know there are Ukrainian units, we know the Russians are worried, we know the Russians are trying to stop them, we can uh, geolocate that. But as long as it's just infantry, I wouldn't say it's a breach. I hope it comes, and I will rejoice when it's there, but I don't have any proof for that yet. All righty, good point. Uh, Genesis then Melhus. Thank you, Thomas. And as a proud British person, I can completely concur with your analysis of the UK armed forces at the moment. Absolutely lamentable. However, uh, like Furious and yourself, I was impressed with the attack on the uh, airfield up north in, in Russia. However, I was more impressed the other day, and I think this has largely gone under the radar, in, especially in Western press, about the fact that Ukrainian commandos had boots on the ground in Crimea. Not only did they have boots on the ground, they conducted an operation 
and killed a load of Russians and then went home scot-free. Yes, they may have lost a colleague over the side, but they waited 12 hours and got him. I would just like to hear your take on that attack. Thank you. Um, yes, the Ukrainians have been in Crimea from day one. There's a whole bunch of Ukrainian special forces and lots and lots of partisans in Crimea, tons of weapon depots. The Ukrainians are getting ready like the French Marquis in 1944 for the day when basically the moment has come to start hitting the rear lines of the Russians and blow up bridges and communications, kill commanders and so on. Um, so, yes, on Independence Day, the Ukrainian landed in Crimea and for once they didn't land in the night. They didn't land in civilian clothes. They didn't land to basically insert special forces and partisans and uh, trainers and communication specialists and sappers and so on. They landed as a show of force that the Russian Navy is unable to stop small Ukrainian boats going 100 kilometers through the Black Sea. And they showed that the Russians are unable to have the reconnaissance and intelligence assets to find these Ukrainian units on their way. And the Ukrainians showed that the Russians have almost no units defending the coast of, Ukra of Crimea. This was a statement. And I think the Ukrainians will continue with that and try to hit the Russians, like on the Kinburn spit, because if you hit them there, the Russians will have to redeploy forces to stop the Ukrainians from landing. And if you force the Russians to redeploy forces, those troops are missing at the front in the north in Zaporozhye or at the Dnieper River. So there's a pretty much huge interest of Ukraine to continue that. The really interesting moment will be when they, I, I, in my opinion, there's thousands of Ukrainian troops and partisans right now in Crimea waiting for the signal. The Russians obviously haven't cracked that network. But the Ukrainians are there. The Ukrainians are getting ready. And it will happen. It's just not yet clear when. All righty. Thank you, Thomas. And I, I hope that's the truth. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you, Janice. Much appreciated. And for that, we go to Menos for our last and final question. Menos, please. <laughs> Yes, thanks. Um, as you remember, perhaps uh, the the Engels two uh, airbase, which is a um, uh, strategic uh, bomber airbase near Saratov, was attacked uh, back in December in twenty twenty two. But uh, I don't think there's been any activity there since then. Uh, the Russians did displace some of their bombers away from that base, but they're back there now. I think so. They're flying both from Engels, and they're also flying up from uh, Olenia up in, in, in Murmansk uh, Oblast. Thank you. Yes, the Russians are flying from these two bases. And I'm pretty sure that the Ukrainians are looking at all kinds of options to hit those two bases. Um, in the ideal world, the Ukrainians have a long-range cruise missile 
that comes and just uh, cluster munitions the whole airfield with thousands of cluster munitions. Because basically, you don't have to destroy a strategic bomber, you know. It's enough if there's a cluster munition that blows up next to the cockpit. This thing is gone. You need months to repair it. So ideally, the Ukrainians have some cluster munition cruise missiles to strike those airfields. If not, they will use drones. Anything works. Um, we don't know when, when the Ukrainians will strike it, but the hope is that it is soon, because the less bombers the Russians have, the less cruise missiles they can fire at Ukraine, because you, Russians fire the cruise missiles from ship and from airborne bombers and fighter jets. So, yeah, I would love for this basis to be attacked. Um, the Ukrainians used uh, old reconnaissance drones. They used all kinds of um, do-yourself, do-it-yourself equipment to hit them. The real price is to have a cruise missile that can fly to this base and just release an immense amount of cluster munitions all over it. Because once those rain down, you can damage five, six, seven, whatever is parked in an area of the Russian bombers. And these are done damaged beyond repair. So um, hopefully Ukrainians are working on that. The United States definitely has this capability, but it's not going to give Ukraine that because an attack on the Russian nuclear triad would lead to an escalation. The Ukrainians definitely are developing some stuff to attack the Russians there. I wish them the best of luck, seriously, because anything that is destroyed inside Russia helps Ukraine. The further away from Ukraine equipment or Russian production facilities or capacities are destroyed, the better. Because if you destroy it far inside Russia, you destroy it far away from a place where it can hurt or kill a Ukrainian. So personally, I would like to see these air bases attacked. I would love to see the Russian factories for drones and cruise missiles attacked. I would also love the Russian defense ministry has an office where they um, plan the missile attacks on Ukraine. I would love to have that office attacked because then you could kill all the people that plan these attacks against civilian targets in Ukraine. Uh, the thing is that you can be sure the Ukrainians are working on it, but you know, it's not that easy. The United States, if they make a new missile, it takes them five to 10 years for a completely new missile design. The Ukrainians have to do it in uh, one and a half, two years with a much less um, money and capabilities in engineering and technology than the United States. Yes, the Ukrainians get help from the West, but also, you know, you have to disperse the production facilities and so on. So, yeah, I'm sure the Ukrainians are working on some really, really smart solutions to attack all those Russian air bases and factories, but right now they're not yet there. Hopefully, they will get to strike it before fall, before it gets cold, because then you help deter Russian attacks on Ukraine's infrastructure and you help to protect Ukraine's infrastructure. So, yeah, that would be really good. We don't know exactly 
what the Ukrainians are working on. When it comes to missile, I again suggest to look at John Rich, who is the missile genius. Aficionado. Absolutely. <laughs> he studies, he, he studies, he's a rocket scientist and he studies rocket science. So anything that is a missile or a rocket, he's like, yes, I look at the fuel and I can tell you what kind of engine it is. And this is the sound of a turbofan composed. Like all those details, you're like, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. So yeah, um, long story short, Ukraine has to have its long, strain, long range strike capabilities. It needs it as soon as possible. And let's not kid ourselves, almost no European nation has that capability, but we all need it. Because if we ever get into a war with an enemy, we need to take out the enemy's production facilities and airfields. And almost all European nations rely for that on the US Air Force, which will not always be there, you know? So European nations, Sweden, can make long-range missiles, the United Kingdom, and France, and Germany, and Italy, Turkey, all possess the technology. And almost all of these countries use the technology only for long-range anti-ship missiles. Except for the Germans with Taurus, where the Germans built a long-range land attack missile. So long story short, we Europeans definitely need into this game too of producing long-range strike capabilities. Uh, we can learn from the Ukrainians because they are right now making all the experience that we will need for our equipment. And we should help the Ukrainian with giving them technology from us that they can produce because the Ukrainians don't have jamming-proof, encrypted military communication satellites in space. France, Italy, Germany, Spain, the UK, and so on, United States have such satellites. So we should give the Ukrainians our um, communication packages for their missiles so they can use them to communicate with their missiles and so on. You know, we, we should help Ukraine with technology that they cannot come up with during wartime, but we have and we can give it to them in exchange for them telling us what works and what doesn't work for our own missile development. Um, that said, let's make a summary of the situation before I, I log off and go back to Karabakh. Um, Ukraine's offensive has neither stalled nor has it failed. It's grinding on. The Russians are more and more running out of reserves, which is the intention of this phase of the offensive. The Ukrainians still have reserves. The Ukrainians even pulled out units from the front to give it a rest and train them up more. The Ukrainians are continuously hitting Russian forces along the Dnieper River to soften them up for an eventual beachhead and landing across the Dnieper. Dnieper. And the Ukrainians are striking Russian artillery and equipment deep behind the Ukrainian lines. The Russians have moved almost all interesting objects out of scalp and storm shadow range, which means that the Ukrainians are running out of targets for that because, I mean, you don't want to strike a command post of a company with a storm shadow. You want to hit a battalion command post or a division command post. 
but the Russians have begun to disperse them and move them so far away and so hide them so well that the Ukrainians are running out of targets. Um, yeah, and the next big thing that I'm looking forward, Boeing should finally have managed to start mass production of the ground-launched small diameter bomb. So um, it was promised in September the deliveries will begin, and I really, really hope for that because then we would have a, a precision-guided munition for Ukraine of 150 kilometer range, which would be so cheap that a storm shadow missile is an expensive, expensive toy, and you cannot waste it on some small target. The ground-launched small diameter bomb is basically an old rocket booster that the United States wanted to throw away with a cheap dump bomb and a guidance kit that glides the bomb to its target. It's so cheap, it's cheaper than a GMLRS rocket. Ukraine can use them basically to hit single Russian soldiers sunbathing at the beach, and it's still worth it. So very much looking forward to that. Supposed Boeing production capacity is 10,000 per year. We will see if this is true. If it is true, we will see an immense amount of small Russian targets that were out of GMLRS range and were too small to waste a scalp or storm shadow on it get hit in the next few weeks. And I, for my part, are very much looking forward to that because that would be a fun, fun way to end the summer with a lot of Russian fireworks in the south of Ukraine. It will be a hot September, evidently. Thank you, Thomas. Much appreciated. Thank you for taking the time this evening. It was tremendous. I tend to believe that uh, sometime later this week or on the weekend, we may actually see each other here for another longer session. And if not this weekend, then maybe next weekend. But you tell us when you have the time. Um, I have to write a Karabakh article. I have to celebrate my birthday tomorrow. Uh, I'm... You know traveling on Thursday on tomorrow. Now that you said it, um, I hope that someone in Ukraine hears it and is like, "Yes, storm shadow some Russian command posts for Thomas in a nice firework," because that would—that's the only present I want. Make some beautiful Russian explosion, like you know, on Ukraine Independence Day, they blew up a Russian S four hundred system. Huge explosion, please. No cakes. Um, Maybe I'm going to do a fundraiser for drones for a unit that I support tomorrow because that no unit needs drones and I trust them. But right now I need to do Karabakh. And while we were talking, I saw that Azerbaijan is moving troops again. So, you know, you, every time I write Karabakh articles, the events are so fast coming in that basically once I finish it, it's already outdated, even though I began to write it in the morning and I finish it in the evening. So Karabakh is it's the most crazy place in the world right now. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, maybe we see it's this. Maybe we see us this weekend. Maybe next weekend. I have to check. Wait. Um, what is this Sunday? Anyone have a calendar? What is this Sunday? What day is it? Um, the tenth. That's the tenth. Yes. Good. The tenth. Yeah, I would be free. I would be free to tent uh, because on the 14th I have a big presentation. So on the 10th I'm free and then I have two days where I have to prepare for that presentation. But I promise nothing. 
I will look forward to Ukraine giving me some fireworks tomorrow and I will be back. And I hope everyone here had a good time. And please, if anyone of you hear some people say the Ukrainian offensive has failed, the best answer is to laugh at them and tell them, yeah, <laughs> you know nothing. Because it has not failed. It has not even stalled. It's still in the middle. It's still ongoing. We are halfway, maybe. This is, as Winston Churchill, not even the end of the beginning. I don't remember what Churchill exactly said, but it's not the end. Ah, it's not the beginning. I of have the to end. check the... It's the end of the beginning. Exactly. Thank you. I, have to, I always have to look back at LL Main quotes for Winston Churchill's best quotes. Um, yeah, so it's not even the... Axel said it correctly. It's too late. I'm with my mind already at Karabakh. <laughs> no problem. I have, to, I have to get back. I have to write a 2020 war we uh, summary and I already know they want it to be 1,000 letters and it's going to be 10,000 letters because I just have to get into small unit <laughs> tactics and war crimes because both sides in the Karabakh war have been committing up war crimes and the amazing thing is the Ukrainians haven't gotten into that I, just one thing I want to say I have seen so many war crimes from Syria, especially from Karabakh and from the Russian, especially the Wagner guys. The Ukrainians aren't committing war crimes, which shows an excellent command and control of the troops. Do not let that happen. War crimes are a sign of sloppy discipline. The Russians have it. The Azerbaijanis have it, the Armenians have it, Wagner lives by it, Syria is a complete mess, the Ukrainians don't, which shows there is a clear command and control of the troops, and such things aren't tolerated. And I have to commend the Ukrainians for that, because this is not normal. That um, In the West, you know it's not going to happen because NATO has a strict command and control and units that would do some crime like that would be immediately taken out by the military police. Ukraine clearly, clearly has a really good control of its troops and I have to commend them for that. And with that, applause for the Ukrainian forces who are fighting bravely, competently and correctly. I wish everyone a good night. I see Søren Herbst is here. I wish him a good time on the uh, space and I hand over to him now and thank everyone for being here and I will be back soon and Slava Ukraini. Hello and Slava. Thank you, Thomas. Much appreciated.